Well, we've had an exciting morning, haven't we? And uh, celebrating dads. We all appreciate all of the fathers and the hard work and all the diligent things that our dads do. We appreciate them so very, very much. And, uh, of course, uh, celebrating, praying here with the Mongolian missionaries and then obviously having Harvest lead in worship. It's been an incredible celebratory day. Has it not been that way? Amen. Now you got me. In second, in second Thessalonians chapter two, have mercy. Because if you have not read second Thessalonians chapter two, we're about ready to open up a can that uh, really is kind of a challenging topic. It's not necessarily celebratory, but uh, it's important. How many of you know that a lot of times, at least uh, as Dr. Ron and I have been talking about preaching schedules and what will be shared, um, obviously you want to be an encouragement, you want to sow, uh, you know, sow celebration, you want to make sure you're revealing how great God is. But oftentimes, at least for me, uh, it's easy to dodge topics because they're just downers. And Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 is one of those topics that deals with subjects that honestly, if it weren't for the fact that we were moving uh, systematically chapter by chapter by chapter, I could leapfrog over this one. And, and you notice who's preaching this one. It's not Dr. Ron. And the reason is because Paul is going to open up a can, and it's the can called, and listen to it, apostasy. See, you can hear a pin drop, right? Apostasy. Now let's just catch up, can we, a little bit. Paul had been writing to the Thessalonians. It's his second letter. He's already been laying the framework, the foundation, with regards to the return of the Lord. Uh, the Thessalonians had been concerned about their loved ones that have already died or perished, because they thought that the return of the Lord was going to take place within their lifetime. And so with these people who had passed on, there was naturally concern as to what was going to happen with them. And so he begins to explain to them through these letters exactly what will happen with them. He's trying to encourage them. He has mentioned on more than one occasion that he was speaking to them in order to bring hope and to bring comfort. He begins to outline all the different areas of church health, individual health, how we need to be healthy in the context of waiting upon the return of the Lord. And then he gets to this second chapter, and he begins to open up the can with regards to the environment that we will be living in in last days with regards to those who will fall away from the faith. My wife and I, Trace and I, were married in... 1982, 34 years ago, and uh, we were married both in college. I was almost graduated from college, and, and she had a couple more years left, but we were married, and all of our attendants that participated with us in the wedding were obviously those that we went to school with, and I uh, was going to college at that time as a religion major, and so all of my friends were studying to be pastors and ministers. And you have to understand, we were zealous. I mean, we, we, we had a group of zealous guys that loved God passionately. I mean, we weren't just doing this as a vocational thing. I mean, we were, we were zealous and passionate. We were a group of guys that actually started an all-night prayer meeting 
on Friday nights. We started the prayer meeting at 10 p.m. because we wanted to pick the most difficult moment for a young single guy in college to choose to pray. And so we decided Friday night at 10 because that was going to cut into any daytime or any Friday night time. So Friday nights at 10 o'clock and we would pray every Friday night all night long into Saturday morning. And so we were zealous. We were scheduled. Most of us were scheduled to preach at churches on the weekends. Um, we would study together. We went to Bible classes together. We had theology study groups together. We were passionate. Let me tell you, we were crazy. In fact, the era we were there, they were just beginning football at the school. Now, I don't believe this way now. How many of you know that you morph out of certain beliefs from your younger age as you get older? So I don't believe what I'm about ready to tell you we did. I don't believe that now. But we felt like by bringing football into the school, it was compromising the spiritual atmosphere because they were soliciting all these heathen football players to come to our pure school. And so, so that we, we would get out there on Friday nights and we would pray on the football field that God in his mighty hand of fire would come down and just consume the whole thing. Not realizing we're sitting in the middle of that football field that if God were to consume it, we would go up in smoke as well. I've often said, sometimes when you're really born again, I mean really born again, you're worse than any, you know, five or ten demons. I mean, your zeal just sort of overtakes you. And we were kind of that way. These were passionate people. We were passionate people, and all of these guys were in my wedding. There were seven of us, including me, that were attendants in the wedding. If I were to show the picture of, of that group today and had a laser pen, I could point out to you that now there are only two who are serving the Lord. Two out of seven, passionate, on fire, studying for the ministry, people that for whatever reasons fell away from the Lord. Now that's not celebratory, but I suspect all of you in this room today, if you've walked with the Lord any amount of time, can probably Think of someone, maybe a family member, a friend, an acquaintance, somebody that you know started out a certain way, professing a certain thing, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reasons, they have fallen away. Now, I will grant you that's not the most pleasant of topics to have to deal with, but yet Paul, talking about the environment that will take place before the day of the Lord, begins to open up this whole can of apostasy. And I thought to myself, perhaps... Really, if we looked at it honestly, there might not be a better topic, especially in the era you and I are living in. Because here in America, while we don't have it nearly as difficult as our brothers and sisters in other countries of the world, the fact of the matter is things are changing here. There's uh, an adversity, there's a hostility uh, that's beginning to be pressed upon the people of God. And I honestly believe that there's a sifting that's taking place. And that this is the very era that we're going to find out in America exactly who's really in and who's not. And so perhaps it may be the best of topics to begin to share with you. And I wanted to do it in such a way because I knew it was kind of a topic that, that you know, it can go a lot of directions. It can almost bring a solemnity that, that, doesn't, that doesn't help us. And, and so I'm going to try to do this in such a way that the first half, I'm going to do a little Bible study. Is that okay? If we studied the Bible in church. Is okay. And then maybe the second half, I'm going to do something a little more devotional so that we can sow some hope and some encouragement, comfort, and other things 
uh, inside of you. So you bear with me. And, and, and I've entitled this in sort of a personal way. I've entitled it, I just can't go back. I just can't go back. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen carefully. He writes, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining Now, hear me when I say this. I'll just stop there and call a time out. I believe that the church, as the Holy Spirit works through the church, we are the restraining factor in the earth. Now, hear me. If you and I weren't here, this place would be even worse than it already is. You see, the world doesn't get this, but they need us more than they think. They have no idea what this world would be like if it had not been for God's people in his church. But according to this, Paul says that, that the, the, this man of lawlessness will not be revealed until the restraining is taken away. But he says, however, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with his breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Now, let me just stop. Time out again. There will be, in in these latter days, it says, an increase in lying signs and wonders, counterfeit signs and wonders. But here really is the good news behind that. You can't counterfeit something unless there's a reality to it. No, Nobody counterfeits a $3 bill. Because there's no such thing as a $3 bill. You only counterfeit reality. And so while it is true that Satan himself will come in order to deceive, doing all sorts of lying signs and wonders, here's the deal. There's still real signs and wonders that God will still perform. But he says the reason this falling away takes place, listen carefully, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved... And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We'll stop there. And we'll be talking about, I just can't go back. How about repeat that after me? Can you do that? Just just humor me. Say that with me. Say, I just can't go back. One more time. I just can't go back. I think that when most people read these verses, they, they tend to focus on trying to figure out who the man of lawlessness is rather than understanding and avoiding what the mystery of lawlessness is. None of us know the exact time of the revelation of the man of lawlessness. You and I don't know when the Antichrist is going to come upon the scene. So we could speculate, and that might be interesting, and it may have its moments to do that. But here's what Paul says. 
We may not know who the man of lawlessness is, but he says the mystery of lawlessness is already manifested. Now, is there really any debate over that? There's a mystery, is there not, to lawlessness. There's an enigma even to rebellion. I think uh, in recent years, I've thought to myself, who would have believed that we are seeing today things we could not even have imagined 20 years ago? That there has been a tsunami of lawlessness that has absolutely covered this nation and is covering the earth, that, that there's an enigma to it. I mean, how many of you know we are spending our time in Washington, D.C. over bathrooms? That's an enigma to me. That's a mystery to me. It's a mystery how, how all of a sudden things that have been millennial old concepts are suddenly called into question. We have to have a conversation about it. What? There's a mystery to me about these things. And the mystery of lawlessness, according to Paul, is what begets apostasy. Now, today is Father's Day, and I just want to exhort all of our dads and remind you that Even as we're talking about a subject that isn't pleasant, you hold a key in uh, this feature taking place in your family or whether or not your family will go on and and serve the Lord. There was a, a Swiss demographic research study that I ran across in 1994, which was explosive in its, in its findings. They were evaluating the question as to how religion is passed along to the next generation. And these are the findings. I want you to listen in very carefully. Listen to this. These were their results. If mom and dad were both regular church attenders, 33% of the kids would become regular attenders. 41% would be be irregular attenders. And 25% would walk away completely. Remember that. 33, 25, excuse me, 33, 41, and 25 However, if mom alone was regular, but dad was irregular, listen, it goes from 33% to 3% of the kids become regular, 59% become irregular, and 38% walk away. And then lastly, they found that if mom was regular, but dad wanted nothing to do with God or nothing to do with church or nothing to do with spiritual life, listen to this. It began with 33%. It drops now to 2% of the kids become regular. 37% become irregular. And over 60% will never darken the door of a house of God. I share that with you because it basically reveals that dads are the linchpin with regards to a spiritual inheritance. Dads are the linchpin. Now, moms, I, let me tell you, you're important because a lot of moms have, have stood in their homes and have stood in their churches. In fact, in fact, as men, we need to repent that the women have had to stand for spiritual things for so many years. So we affirm you, you wonderful ladies and all that you've done. But the linchpin is the dad. It is the dad who begins to set into motion the spiritual inheritance and the generational legacy. We are always but one or two generations away from extinction. So is it any wonder that there's a mystery of lawlessness? Is it any wonder that the enemy does his best to use every satanic device to undermine God's people, to undermine the church, and to produce apostasy? Now, 
talking about apostasy, why don't we just do a little quick Bible study and then we'll get to the encouraging part, hopefully, and just simply ask the question, what in the world is apostasy? Let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. The word itself is only used a couple of times in the New Testament. And honestly, if you were to go from here and you do your own study on this, you will find out that there's several ways that people like to translate it. And that's one of the frustrating things with the original languages is that you have to understand a little grammar and you have to understand some etymology in order to kind of get your arms wrapped around some things. But according to your eschatology and how you look at last days, there are a couple ways people want to approach this. But I have come to understand, as I have studied it, that basically apostasy means defection. It means desertion or a forsaking of the truth. On the screen above, you'll see those of you that like this sort of a thing. The Greek word is up there, apostasia is the word. It comes from the Greek word apostemi, apo meaning from, histemi meaning depart. It means that you're standing at one time and then suddenly you've departed from a previous place you've stood. There's a desertion to it. There's a leaving from it. Wherever it was that you found yourself, you've left that particular place. And the truth of the matter is Paul identifies even in his writings by name, Several people that apparently, for whatever reason, we don't know exactly all of them, but they've departed from where they were initially standing. In fact, he speaks of Demas having forsaken him, having loved this present world. He talks about Phygelus, Homogenes, talks about Hymenaeus, Alexander. These are funny names, but all of these are names that Paul puts out there that say they started by standing and now they've moved to another location. Now, It's interesting because he writes to Timothy the same thing. Just bear with me, I'm building a little case here. But he says in 1 Timothy 4.1 these words. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will apostasia. Some will depart from the faith. Why? Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So apostasy is linked most often to deception. It's a deception that's perpetrated by demonic forces. And this is the relevant question. Now, stick with me because this is the one everyone wants to know. This is the one, I think, which is really the the big money question. So bear with me as we answer this one, and then we're going to get to something that's just going to encourage you, and it's this. How does one reach this point? That's the question. How do you reach this point? Well, Paul says basically three things in this text, three key points as to why people reach this place. Number one, he says this. He says they did not receive a love for the truth. A love for the truth. Somewhere in their experience, there was a gap. Somewhere in their experience, they, they, they missed or was circumvented a love for the truth. I know I'm saying that over and over, but I want you to hear it. That there's something inside of the Christian that loves the truth. You love the truth. See, as believers, we do not begrudgingly or dutifully just adhere to the truth. We love the truth. You want to hear the truth. You're eager to embrace the truth. You're not trying to dodge the truth. You're not trying to circumvent the truth. You're not trying to find the page that tells you it doesn't apply to you. You love the truth. I have often said that that Paul uses the same word as to how we relate to our spouses. You know, we love our spouse. Now, hear me when I say this. There are times our spouses aggravate us. 
Everybody gets quiet because they're not going to say amen. <laughs> I ain't saying amen, Pastor Baird. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you, you, can, you love your spouse, but there are times they aggravate you. They don't mean to, but they aggravate you. But it doesn't, it doesn't diminish the fact that if you're in love with them, you want them. You want to be around them. You embrace them. You, you want to interact with them. That's what it means to love. Hear me. That's a little bit of how truth works in our life. Truth can aggravate you. In fact, Jamie Buckingham said years ago, he said, the truth will set you free, but not before it aggravates or frustrates or makes you miserable, I think is what he actually said. But there's something inside of you that loves the truth. If there is not a love for the truth, hear me, if there's not a love for the truth, you are a candidate for a deception. You got to love the truth. And it makes a lot of sense because if there's not something in me that creates incredible value and hunger in knowing truth, then I'll easily be led astray. So number one, he says, that they, they, they apostatize because they don't love the truth. And number two, which was very similar to this, Paul says they did not believe the truth. It's interesting how we can hear the truth, but hearing it does not necessarily mean we believe it. Sunday after Sunday, you can hear preaching and teaching and you can read the scripture and, and, and all of this is good. But my question to you this morning is, do you really believe it? Because people who fall away do not believe what God has said is true. And this is the key to apostasy, which is, is to me significant. And that is, is that especially in church life, we have become, we have become carriers of information. We have simply become reposits of that which, which is biblical into our system. And so we know lots of things, but the key is not just knowing it, it's believing it. Because here's the deal. You can know truth. Hear me. You can know truth. But what happens is, is if you know truth, but yet you still decide to sin against that knowledge, what happens is, is that every time you sin against that knowledge, it sears something inside of you that makes it more difficult for the Holy Spirit to convict you to the place of bringing you to repentance and back into conformity to the word of God. And this is really where we are today in the church because we find ourselves filled with knowledge, but for some reason we don't think we have to believe it or it's not for me or I don't see, you know, it can be applied to me. And we keep sinning against that knowledge because it then it keeps searing our consciences and then suddenly this good guilt or this good conviction that comes upon us suddenly evaporates away. And what happens is we sin against truth thinking that God's okay with it because we no longer feel the conviction that should come to us when we're disobeying what is clearly written in his word, which is why Christians will stand up and they will say, I can do this, or I think this, or I even think Jesus would do this when it is patently against his word. And we go, why in the world you know, would this be, how could they do this? It's because there is something that is hardened off to where they no longer sense the spirit of God working in that convicting way. And because they don't sense the conviction anymore, they confuse it with favor or affirmation. Well, God hadn't spoken to me about it. Well, he may have been trying and maybe you've just pushed it off long enough that that area's just seared. They did not believe the truth. See, that, that's why this is weighty. And I had to get Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 
But this was important in this era. And then number three, he said the reason they do this is because they took pleasure in unrighteousness. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. Those that fall away enjoy unrighteous things. They enjoy their sin. Now this is what's interesting. The Bible, the Bible tells us that there is pleasure in sin for a season. So I've actually had people sit in front of me in, in an office and look at me and have the, the boldness and the temerity to say, Pastor Baird, ever since I walked away from God and ever since I left church and I just decided to go my own route, it's never been better. Things have fallen into place. You know, serving God, I was always swimming upstream. It was always hard and difficult. But the minute I walked away, it's easy. Things were falling into place. And I'm just telling you, life has never been better. And they've asked, what do you say to that? And I say, you're right. Because there's pleasure in sin for a season. But seasons end. I can remember looking into the eyes of a gifted thoracic surgeon, a doctor. Thoracic surgeons make lots of money. He had this incredible home. He had the incredible life, the cars, the all the surroundings and trappings that would come with a great profession and career. He had an incredibly wonderful wife, attractive wife, great young kids. He had everything you would think that would mark a man for success. And I'll never forget, he was sitting in my office on one occasion, this great gifted thoracic surgeon, and he was willing to throw it all away because he found what he thought was someone better. And I looked him in the eye and I said, do you not understand the repercussions of all that's going to happen? And he looked and he said, I don't care. I'm having the time of my life. There's pleasure in sin for a season. Hear me when I say this. There's a difference in the scripture between the man, the believer who stumbles or ignorantly falls into sin or is ensnared. There's a difference between a human frailty and, and, and certainly we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But there's a difference between the one who stumbles and the one who's calendaring his next liaison. There's a difference between those two things. And that's the difference Paul is saying here. He's saying these aren't just people who stumble, bumble around. I mean, aren't you glad for that? You know, if God held us to that standard, we'd all be in trouble. So it's not stumble bumbling around, but it's, it's the one who takes pleasure in doing this. There's something that hasn't connected here. Now you say, well, well, why do we need to put all that on the table? Well, I put it on the table because basically when we begin to talk about apostasy, it opens up, it opens up the discussion as to the nature of salvation. It unveils the tension and I, I'm just going to kind of deal with it just for a moment. It unveils the tension that exists between God who is sovereign, who does the saving, who preserves his people, who keeps his people by the power of God and nothing can snatch you out of his hand and all of those wonderful promises, there's a tension between that and the tension that exists between the ability of a man to make a poor decision, a wrong decision, to to even turn his back and to go another way and, and man's freedom. So God's sovereignty and man's freedom. I don't know about you, I think about these things and sometimes it bothers me concerning this tension that I feel. Now, I'll just be up front with you. I'm not going to solve that this morning. And everybody said amen to that. <laughs> There's been a lot brighter people than me that have, that have argued all, all, all over these things. I, 
you know, I'm a Wesley and Whitfield fan. And, you know, Whitfield and Wesley were contemporaries. And they would send letters back to each other. I ran between services. And I got one of Whitfield's letters to Wesley on election. He wrote a letter to Wesley. It was 17 pages long. It was that little thin type. I don't know. I guess in 18th century writing, that would probably be twice that size. So he writes Wesley a 35-page letter. And, and they send letters back to each other. I always wish some of these guys would have had Facebook in their day. I mean, I can only imagine the thread that would have begun to develop as they begin to argue these things. And you know the way they talk to each other. I love the way they talk to each other. You know, Whitfield would write a letter and say, My dearest Mr. Wesley, you know, I, I, I beseech you, forswear this heresy that you're entering into. And, you know, nobody talks like that anymore. But they even fussed about it, and yet they remained great friends. So I get the fact that there's going to be some differences of opinion here. But but let me just share this, and this is the point I want to get to. I'm not here to untangle the theological mysteries of the millennia. What I am here is to share with you this, and this is where it gets real devotional, real personal, and it gets down to where you and I live on this subject, and it's this. I just can't go back. I can't go back. Something happened in me when I met Jesus. Something something far more profound than a walk to an altar. Something deeper than just making a decision. Something something larger than just, I, I signed a card somewhere. He came in me and something changed. Something changed. It was, it was February of 1978. I was dating this Christian girl whose dad was a religion professor at the college there in the city. And the only way I could date her was that I had to go to church with her. And so, uh, and, and let me just say this. I'll say this now. I don't know what her dad was thinking letting her date me. I mean, that's a, that's a whole nother story. But anyway, we'll just, we'll, we'll leave that one alone. I'll leave that one for another message. Um, but nonetheless, I had to go to church with her. And I couldn't go on Sunday morning because that's, you know, after Saturday night. And that, that was not a good moment. And, um, and, and Wednesday night was in the middle of the week. And I wasn't going to do that on, uh, in the middle of the week. So Sunday night was the only night I was going to go to church. And that was the night that, that this group, this denomination, did all its evangelistic work. And so I showed up every Sunday night for six months having to sit through their evangelism services. I want you to hear me. I... I sat through the best they could throw at me. I mean, I heard hellfire and brimstone. I heard the rapture. I was told more times I'd be left behind. I mean, six months. I I heard the best they had. I mean, it was a large church, great speakers. They threw everything they had, and I was unfazed, unmoved. One night in February, there was this old guy, had to be in his 70s. White hair, and not anymore, is it? It seems real young now. But, but when you're only, you know, when you're only 19 years old, it was an old guy. And I remember seeing him and saying, what in the world is this old guy going to say to me? You know, I, I realized it was a different era, but this is how we think. What does he have to say to me? He doesn't have ripped jeans. How can he connect with me? He doesn't have, he doesn't have that t-shirt with the big, you know, iron cross on it cool lenses, the right haircut. 
I mean, how's he going to speak to me? I mean, I understand it was 1978, and that's not how it worked then. I'm just contemporizing the moment. How could I connect with this old guy? But here's the key. It's not connecting with the old guy. You see, some of you are young in here today, and I have no clue as to what you're living, your generation, your era. I have no idea. I do my best to stay up to date in my apparel, thanks to my wife. But even that, even that is sad on occasion. But the key is, it isn't whether you hear me or not, it's whether you begin to hear God in me. And if you'll hear God in me, something will happen, because that's what happened Dr. Ron, that night, God spoke through that man in a most unexpected way. And here's, here's the deal. I didn't have any sort of theological precision or understanding. I mean, I'm just this newbie, this rookie. I didn't grow up in church, but something was going on to the place when I stood up and I grabbed the pew in front of me. You know, those of you that ever have gone to a church with a pew, you know how you can get that pew in front of you. I mean, conviction came upon me. I remember this as if it were yesterday. Conviction came upon me. To where my hand would even shake. And I knew because I'd been there enough and I'd watched this enough to know that if you were going to get right with God, you had to slip out from your seat and you had to go down to the front. And down front, we had what were called mourner's benches. Now, they're not altars, and there's a difference. An altar, if you kneel down at an altar, it hits you about chest high. If you kneel at a mourner's bench, it hits you right at the waist. And, and they're about two or three foot wide. So, so you know, it's just a, a couple foot off the ground, two or three foot wide. Why, why did they build them like that? It's because people laid on that thing. You literally laid on that altar, and and most of the time, people would weep their way back to God. Now, I'd seen that for six months, so I kind of knew what the the form and the culture was and how this worked. And I remember saying to myself, I said. All right, God, I'll go down there and I'll get right, but I am not going to cry. I am not going to embarrass myself. I am not going to do anything that in any way is going to, you know, make me look weird or funny because I've seen what goes on down there and it ain't happening. How many of you know, whenever you say never to God, it's as if his ears perk up in the heavenlies. And he says, I heard a never. I heard a never. It's, you never do this in missions either. You never say to God, I'll never, I will never go to Mongolia. Isn't that right, Jerry? You, you never say never. Because the minute you say never, it's like God, he takes it as a challenge. So I slipped out with all of that going on inside of me. And before my knees could hit in front of the mourner's bench, it was a two-nostril alert. I mean, clean, give me the box of Kleenex. Oh, it was messy. I'm here to tell you, but something happened that night. Something took place that night that was profound, that we've lost. Something happened that, that Paul said actually translate a person from darkness to light, from death unto life. You are no longer the old Kevin Baird, but I have now created, the literal Greek says, a new creature in Christ. You are brand new. You are born again. And at that moment, hear me, and at that moment, I remember standing up, not knowing anything. I'm just, I'm, I'm just dumb. Not knowing anything. And, uh, And my youth pastor looked at me, and to this day, it's seared into my psyche. 
when he quoted the verses from Isaiah that says, though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash them and make them whiter than snow. Though they be as crimson, I will make them as wool. And walking outside of the doors of the church that night, going in on that on that cold February night when the ground was brown going in, it was this God did it just for me. There was a snowfall that took place during church service. And when I walked out, I saw this blanket of white snow that, that forever was etched in my mind. I remember going home and telling my mom and my dad about what had happened and and as ineptly as a person can do that when you're only, you know, less than hours saved, sharing with them all that had happened. And, and I remember standing there in the living room and just bubbling, overflowing with all of this. And my parents looking like, what in the world has happened at this particular moment? And, and I think it was, it was my mom who may have said it. I don't know. This is 30, what, 38 years ago now. <laughs> but she looked and she said, oh, 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 it's just a phase you're going through. Well, 38 years later and the phase hasn't ended. See, it hasn't ended. But here's, here's the deal. There was something at that moment and, 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 and I think we just need to maybe at times preach this on occasion. There was something that happened at that moment that put inside of me the reality that I just can't go back. I just can't go back. Now hear me. It's not that some won't try to get you to go back. I'll never forget four months after I was saved. Is it okay if I just tell some stories? This isn't exact, but I'm just going to tell some stories. Four months about after I was saved. I still didn't know much more than I did the night I was saved. But I wanted to reach out to my friends and I wanted to somehow touch them. And, and they reached out to me and they wanted, they wanted me to go with them that night back to the bars that I used to attend. Now understand, I was saved in college. I majored in college, my first year of college, beer drinking and pool shooting. Really, truly. And I blazed out of my first year of college with a 1.69 grade point average. Yeah, you don't have to be an academician to know that ain't good. But you know, once I got saved, it's amazing how my grades went up. But they wanted me to go with them, and I was trying to make a connection. And you know, you do all the things you do. So I said that I would go, and I thought, oh, I'll go drink a, I'll go drink a Diet Coke. Because I realized things change and back in those days, I, I don't know, I'm just sharing my testimony. This may not be yours, it's my testimony. I was saved out of that culture. I'm going to just let a dramatic pause hang for a moment. I was saved out of that culture. But they wanted me to go back. So I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect with them. When I went in, in those days it was a disco. I know, laugh away. I was all the, I know all the first run songs. Earth, wind, and fire comes on the radio, baby. I can sing every lyric with earth, wind, and fire. Yeah, don't do, I won't. But they would, you would pay your cover and they'd tear off a ticket, you know, the ticket stub, and they'd hand you one. And of course, they'd put it in the fishbowl or whatever it is they're doing. And that night they would have drawings. And there were going to be three drawings that night. And uh, so we went in and they all ordered their, libation and I had my coke and uh, then they started doing the drawings I won the first drawing I think it was an eight track cassette or something like that you know the eight tracks where you had to reach 
You have no, you have no idea. First world problem with the eight track tape you had to reach under there. Listen to this though. I won the, they put, they would put your, they would put your stub back in. So you were, you were available for all three drawings that night. Listen to me. I won all three drawings that night. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, that's the favor of God on you right there, isn't it? Ah. No, 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 no. That's called a snare. There's pleasure in sin for a season. And I didn't know much, but I knew enough to know this isn't how it's supposed to work. And all of a sudden, that thing, and when I say that thing, I'm actually talking about that person in me rose up and looked at me and said, Hey, you're mine now. We're not going back. We're not going back. I just can't go back. And this is my hope for all of you, and it's this. That Jesus has so profoundly transformed your life that there's a part of your brain... You say, well, I don't know that it's there. I'm praying. I'm praying that you somehow meet the Lord in such a profound way that there's something that happens inside of you that is of such proportion that when you're going down the road, and I'm talking about, here I am 38 years later, and I can still drive down uh, Highway 30, and I can look at places that the old Kevin would have frequented. And I can look at all the things that the old Kevin would have done and would have loved doing. And there's something inside of me still 38 years later that says, I, I can't go back. I can't do it. I can't do it. Now, I'm gonna, I know, I know, I know time is of value and you have important Father's Day things, but, but give me just a minute or two more. I want to share three things that you can take with you that I think will stick with you. So, apostasy, apostasy can be avoided. Number one is this. You need to remember your old life wasn't as great as you remember. You know, isn't it true though? There's something that God does in us. I believe that time over time, we tend to forget the bad and we remember the good. Now in a godly way, that can be a great thing because a lot of times that'll restore relationships and it'll help heal past items. So some of that's good. But a problem is that gets manipulated by the enemy to where we begin to think back that somehow or another our old life was better than it really was. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have never been back to a high school reunion. I just, for me, I can't. Because what connection do I have anymore with these people who basically the only connection I had was hanging out of windows getting sick on Main Street? I have no connection. I'll never forget, we were going back to Charleston, driving down I-65, and we were down in southern Indiana, and my wife saw the sign for Seymour. And she said, oh, let's stop for a minute, and let's go through Seymour. I don't want to go to Seymour. No, I want to see Seymour. Let's go to Seymour. Come on, please, please, let me go to Seymour. And so what did I do as a good husband? I went to Seymour. So we're driving through Seymour, and she's pointing out everything to me, man. She's showing me this and that, and she goes, oh, oh, there, there, there. There's the Dairy Queen we used to go to, and da 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 I don't care about that Dairy Queen. I mean, this is inside. I would never say that out loud. <laughs> Married for 34 years, you get wisdom. You just smile and go, that's a wonderful Dairy Queen, honey, wonderful Dairy Queen. <laughs> and... uh 
And we'd go through and she'd show me her neighbor's house. Oh, that's where this girl lived. And we'd rode our bikes. Let's go up here. I'll show you where we rode our bikes. And we go and we, you know, and I'm, and I'm doing the whole thing. And in about 20 minutes we were done and we were headed back down the road. And I just simply said this. I said, do you want to go back? She said, ain't no way. I do not, I do not want to go back. Hear me when I say this. You, your old life was not nearly as good as you think it was. In fact, let me just share this with you. In fact, the girl that I was dating at the time when I was saved, listen, <laughs> she wanted me saved just enough so I'd be a little bit better around the edges. But when I got saved, something radical took place. I got saved beyond her needs, her wants, or her expectations. She wasn't signing up for radical. She was just signing up for ex- acceptable. And let me just tell you, she's been back and forth like a yo-yo. But I'm here to tell you, even though that relationship didn't work out, what God did was he gave me a woman who both of us together can look each other in the eye and say, whatever comes our way, this much we know, we're not going back. We're just not going back. Number two, I got to rush. I got to hurry. Number two is this. If you play on the edge, you'll fall in the cage. Is there really anyone here, as tragic as the story was, that did not see the little three-year-old that fell into the gorilla cage in Cincinnati? Tragic story. Tragic story. They had to put the gorilla down. The parents got hit on social media. There's all these things that are going on. And uh, I suppose there's lots of lessons that could be learned. But here's the lesson that I want to leave you with in that short little story, and it's this. That if you play too close to edges, you'll eventually fall in the cage. If you're going to play on the edge, you're going to fall in the cage. Listen, I've had folks look at me. I've been doing ministry, preaching the gospel since I was 19 years old. I've been preaching since I was 19. That's 35 years. Had people sit in front of me, counsel with them, look at me at altars. And and they'll look at me and they'll go, Pastor, how did I get here? It takes no profit to say somewhere, sometime, you were playing at the edge of a cage. Nobody wakes up. One morning and says, oh, today's a good day. Sunny day outside. I think I'll be an apostate today. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to rob the quick shop this morning. Sounds like a good idea. Nobody does that. Nobody nobody says, well, today I'm going to overdose on drugs. Or I'm going to go out and drive my car and get a DUI and put myself in jail. Nobody wakes up one morning and says these things. What happens is, is that you play on an edge with your hand in the cage. And the monkey called sin comes, grabs you eventually, and yanks you down. And then carries you and drags you all over the place. See, if you play on the edge, you'll fall in the cage. And then finally, number three. And this is where we're done. God never blesses the person who retreats. God never blesses the person who retreats. Hebrews 10, we're coming in for the landing, says this. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. It's talking about the return of the Lord, right? But listen, now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But here's the good news. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. 
See, this is the good news this morning. I can look at you and I can tell you that God will not bless you if you retreat. However, I believe better things for you. I believe better things for you. Listen, retreat is not in the Lord's vocabulary and it should not be in yours either. Will there be opportunity to throw in the towel? Of course there will be. Some of you probably came to church today with your towels stuck in your Bibles. Probably saying to yourself, if I don't get a word from God today, if the Lord doesn't speak to me or do something today, if I don't get some miracle or personal prophecy today, I'm here to tell you I am on the brink of losing it and I'm ready to throw in the towel. I'm here to tell you, don't throw in that towel. Your blessing may be at this very moment. You could be 24 hours away from a breakthrough. You'll never know if you throw in the towel. Don't toss in the towel. You're on the edge of a breakthrough. I was reading a story about a 19th century Welsh missionary. God had called him to the country of India, and he was working up in the northeast portion of India. Amam is, I believe, how it's pronounced. One of his converts, an Indian national gentleman, was called to the ministry And he was doing the work of the ministry, but eventually adversity came to him through some of the tribes there in northern India, and he was captured by a a village chief, and uh, they were going to kill him if he would not renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. So the village chief had him tied in front of the whole village, and he looked at the man, he said, renounce your faith in Jesus. And the man said these simple words, he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. It upset the village chief so much that he went and gathered his family, some of whom had professed a relationship with Christ, and he took them and threatened them. And some of them recanted, but he threatened the man who he initially captured with the death of his family. And the man looked at him and said, Though none go with me, still I will follow. And finally the moment came when the village chief really was just angered that he, that he went ahead and had the national killed. And as the story goes, as the national pastor was being killed, he said these final words. He said, the cross before me, the world behind me. There was another young man in the crowd that heard the words and saw the story that day of that martyrdom. And he wrote them all down and put them to Indian music. And it became that hymn that, some of you, if you're old like me, probably remember, those of you that are younger, you, you probably don't know this. This is old school. We just let an old man have old, an old school moment. And he penned it. I've decided to follow Jesus. Stand with me real quick, will you? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided... To follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, Still I will follow, 
Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No. T- Come on, fill your lungs up and sing this now. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. I, I, I just can't go back. I just can't go back. Heavenly Father, I pray today that as we've just listened to your word, read the scripture, certainly, Lord, celebrating all the Wonderful features of ministry being blessed beyond measure by the worship. That, Lord, we wouldn't just be consumers that get our zap for a week and we hope we can make it next Sunday so we can get our next dose. But that, Lord, even now, in just an old school moment, that you'd work in your people and do something so profound in them that something clicks, that they're able to say with all sincerity, I just can't go back. I just can't go back. I can't go back to that stuff. I can't do it. Lord, we want to be of those that the Hebrew writer says that you take pleasure in. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that I believe that's, that's possible. I know that there are people that are on various places in their journey. And I know that some have probably come, as always. In a congregation of this size, it is without doubt that some came really struggling, really challenged. And Lord, my my purpose wasn't to undermine their confidence. My purpose was for them to dig in and find you in a a profound, life-altering, transforming way that sets them, sets their rudder, so that it doesn't matter what gets thrown at them. They'll just say, I just can't go back. I suspect that's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. He was just saying, I just can't go back. So Lord, do that in us. We love you. Bless our dads again. Lord, let them be the leaders. Let them them lead the way in these things. And Lord, we're here to tell you we're in it for the long haul. We want to be at the finish line to see the well done, good and faithful servant. We honor you, Jesus, with everything we've got. With every breath we have, it's all for you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And the assembly said? Amen. Amen. Come on now, put your hands together and celebrate now. All right.